Bloom, Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love by Ajahn Sona. Chapter 8, Due Season So this is the final talk on Anapanasati for this retreat, but only part one of an 18-part series over the next 28 years if things work out. Kidding. I really wanted to concentrate on concentration this time. Concentrate on samadhi and not wander too far. But of course, samadhi is a means to an end. We read some very beautiful descriptions of the jhanas and total immersion and the explicit emphasis that these are ecstatic, beautiful, and blissful experiences which encompass your entire body and sweep through your whole emotional structure and your mind. And they change your mind. You know, sometimes emotions are thought to have a detrimental effect on intellectual function, but they don't. Or some of them don't. Of course, anger and so forth do. But these positive emotions leave your mind in a very lucid condition, and that's the ultimate purpose. It's a shame that we ever leave the jhanas. Notice the structure of the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, contemplating dhamma, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity are really all parts of what we would call the samadhi experience. The accomplished person has raised these seven factors if they are enlightened or on their way to enlightenment. If they are enlightened, they are basically rotating, flowing around in these factors indefinitely. They're not leaving them. So samadhi is a taste, and the Buddha sometimes calls it temporary nibbana. Nibbana has a lot of different definitions, something like 42 or 43 or 38, depending on how you want to talk about it. But the primary one is just freedom from suffering, freedom from the negative conditions. It's the condition of non-return to any kind of distress or suffering in the psychological or emotional dimension. The body may experience pain, but actually these mental experiences of focus and clarity and emotional purification almost negate the experience of bodily pain. We see in the suttas sometimes, for instance, that arahants get sick and they have extreme pains, and in those days they didn't have a lot of medicines. There were all kinds of terrible illnesses that were not treatable. Monks are supposed to take care of each other when they're sick. So you see arahants approaching death through illness, and they're asked by the attendant monks, How are you doing? And the arahant says, I'm not faring well. I'm getting worse. The pain is excruciating. It rips through me like a knife. They definitely experience the full dimensions of pain. But the mind is not shaken by this. Mind is able to observe the physical intensity of these physical experiences, but they're not returning to grief and distress. It's over. It's over once and for all. This is an amazing thing to contemplate in our life because we're all over the map. We're not certain of how we will be tomorrow. Yet the arahant has a sense of inner assurance and certainty that they are finished with it. We can touch on this in samadhi. So here we have this beautiful supportive environment. Everybody's friendly and helpful. You may, even in this retreat, have touched on some pleasant, 
very pleasant, unusually pleasant states. It is not just for the temporary experience. We really want to taste these things so that we keep wondering how that happened, how we get back to that, and ultimately, why does the meter ever expire? Why does it ever run out? Some of you are probably a little nervous about going back home. It was pretty nice here, got into a pretty good state. And now I have to bring this back to the grocery store, back there. Part of us knows that we're not irreversibly free, but that is the ultimate goal. It truly is, and it's in this very life. It's not after the death of the enlightened person. It's in this very life. This is a goal that's not even believed possible out in the world. People don't talk about these things. It's not what they discuss. It would be shocking for most people to even hear the idea that there are certain people who believe you can be free from psychological distress. But this is the super-idealistic encouragement of the Buddha to do this. It is quite a goal when we look into the mind, especially at the beginning, It seems we're looking at Mount Everest, and it's cloud-covered, and we're being asked to climb it. Once we blunder around at the base and get all scratched up and bruised, we think, wow, this is a major project. How do you even begin this? But people eventually do climb Mount Everest, and then it gets easier and easier, right? A blind guy climbed it. One Japanese woman in her 60s has done it about six times, solo, without oxygen. So who's allowed to attain Nibbana and who's not allowed? Do you have the notepad saying, no pass in this life? We should not actually have an opinion about our potential. We're unqualified to have an opinion about our own potential. You should not think, I'm going to make it, or it's not for me. Why would you even have an opinion about that? What's your opinion based on? How could you know anything about this? You might be very close. So what we have to do is set aside our opinions about the possibilities of our own progress, both negative and positive, and just go back to, what else do I really have to do in this life? Really, what would be a richer, more rewarding, deeper possibility? It's pretty hard to come up with anything that's even remotely comparable. It's the ultimate aspiration in life. And we undertake it without being told about our potential. Such beings as the Buddha perhaps could tell you, but he's been gone 2,500 years. So too bad, you just missed him. We're just being real. That's what we have to face, and we have to do the work. I want to read a little bit more of this stuff I wrote down 20 years or so ago. It's interesting because I was just reading it, and I've been teaching some of this stuff for the last 15 years, and I forgot that I had ever written down something similar. You might have even heard me talk about gardening, the gardening of your life, and the production and so forth. I kind of thought I'd thought of that. Isn't it interesting I thought of that? I'm sure lots of people have thought of that, surely. But then I came across this that I'd written down at least 20 years ago. It's called Urgent. The Numbered Discourses 3.91, Achaika Sutta. Quote, Monks, 
There are these three urgent duties of the yeoman farmer. What three? Herein, monks, the yeoman farmer gets his field well plowed and harrowed very quickly. Having done so, he puts in his seed very quickly. Having done that, he lets the water in and turns it off very quickly. These are his three urgent duties. Now, monks, that yeoman farmer has no such magic power or authority as to say, Let my crops spring up today. Tomorrow let them ear. On the following day, let them ripen. No, it is just the due season which makes them do this. The same way there are these three urgent duties of a monk. What three? The undertaking of the training in the higher morality, in the higher thought, and in the higher insight. These are the three urgent duties. Now the monk has no such power or authority as to say, Today let my mind be released from the asavas without grasping, or tomorrow, or the day following. No, it is just the due season which releases his mind as he undergoes the training in these three. Therefore, monks, thus must you train yourselves. Keen shall be your desire to undertake the training in these branches of training. That is how you must train yourselves. End quote. I keep repeating this thing called just putting in the causes and not thinking you have some magic power to say, now, samadhi, do it, appear for me. What you can do are the preliminaries. You can train yourself in sila, your virtue, and listen to dhamma associating with atmospheres which are conducive to it and people which are conducive to help you. You can dwell with your senses restrained in these retreats, and you can then sit and follow the instructions for cultivation of the breath. But you can't say, now, mind, this will appear. You can only do those things. It's nice in a way. You're free from the burden of having what you think of as success or failure in meditation. People are always saying, I couldn't get it, I couldn't make it happen. Right! You can't make it happen. You can put in the causes that make it happen, but you can't make it happen. If you could, there would be no point in having a path. If you could just make it happen, why not then just do it because it would happen for no reason? If that were true, everything would be chaotic in life. Everything would happen for no reason. Things happen for a reason. We have a conviction of that. And so, because things happen for a reason in Buddhism, that would be the closest thing to grace. Things happen for reasons. In my emotional structure, in the way I understand things, the way I feel about life, there are reasons. In modern psychology, we're playing around with those reasons. Quite often, psychological and psychiatric theories and methods are quite obscure to us, how they analyze the mind and why they think certain things work. Then, the various styles and fads of psychology come and pass away. Five years of this, and then it's another thing. Why do I feel this way? Maybe it's the stars. Maybe it's the food. Maybe it's my mother. Maybe it's my genes. Maybe the atmosphere has too much carbon in it. 
We're just looking for all these reasons. We would like clear reasons. The Buddha is so brilliant. He's harnessing a structure of causal processes which you can confirm. At some point in your practice, you'll start to see that it's having an effect on you. This is where we're being handed results. These results are usually positive, but even then we're not capable sometimes of appreciating that this process is positive. We might be losing interest in something, losing interest in things that are regarded as exciting and stuff you might have put a lot of time into developing your skills around. Now you're losing interest, so you ask, is this going the way I want it to? You're being handed results that you're not actually mature enough to appreciate sometimes. So there's a certain amount of trust, and there is a growing awareness that stuff is happening here. I'm changing. It's odd in the sense that it kind of feels like it's been handed to me. I don't know, I'm not doing it. That's the way it feels. You're doing the preliminaries, the causes, the duties, and then all you can do is wait. The more you change, the more curious you get about what's next. Then you start reading a lot of spiritual autobiographies to find out what's next. It is interesting because sometimes you think, that's what happened to me. That's amazing. They had that experience. This is a universal path, and this samadhi is very, very important in it. Many of the schools tend to set it aside. It's really important that we restore it. I remember in the first or second talk, I quoted the Buddha as saying that the deeper suttas will fade away. Now all you do is read the poems and the little stories by later authors around this stuff, and you don't read the original deeper suttas the suttas on emptiness, on anatta, on selflessness. And, in fact, for centuries, the suttas on the jhanas have been set aside. You might practice meditation for ten years and never have heard of the jhanas. Strange. So the jhanas are something to recover and to be completely familiar with because you're all quite capable intellectually of reading these things and understanding the language It's not that obscure. It's not that hard to figure out. Then sit down and practice them, and they will bear their fruit in time. In the Anapanasati Sutta, the last tetrad is regarding reflection on anicca and so forth. But what it talks about is this fading and diminishment and cessation. The fading, diminishment, cessation are qualities of the results of reflection on Dhamma. And it's not in the breath that you're observing the qualities of fading, of cessation. It's that the breath has allowed you to arrive at a place where your mind is extremely clear and focused. It's that the breath has allowed you to arrive at a place where your mind is extremely clear and focused. And now you contemplate life, your life, and the reality that you live. Quite often we talk about anicca, dukkha, anatta, and everybody is out there looking for anicca, dukkha, anatta. But this is anicca, dukkha, anatta, the internal contemplation. Yes, it applies outward, but it's very easy to get objective and scientific about seeing anicca. But this thing that's looking is anicca. The very process of looking is anicca. 
the very process is without ultimately an enduring observer itself. This process starts to open up as empty of the assumed self, and this results in the fading away and cessation of what? Of greed, hatred, delusion, all the impediments. The fetters start to weaken. One has to weaken the fetters. The Buddha talks about a rope that's left on the beach, and the wind and the rain and the sun slowly affect the fibers of the rope. The rope looks the same. It looks the same diameter and so forth. But you pick it up after it's been lying out there for a few months, even a one-inch rope, and it just falls apart in your hands. These are the fetters. The wind and the rain and the sun are what you're doing with the concentration, the samadhi, and the after-effects of the samadhi. This is the kind of cool and reflective gaze that quite naturally accompanies you and continues after deep serenity. You kind of look around with your eyes still a bit half-closed. You feel very serene, and you're looking, questioning. What is this? What is this story? What is this body? There are little mechanisms, kind of protective mechanisms, that nature installs in humans. Concepts of self and the ability to forget that you're going to die and those kinds of things, those are all part of the installation process. Those have to be bypassed. Samadhi is the way you bypass these things. And you see with unusually lucid eyes stuff that you didn't see before, even though it's right in front of you. You don't see it, and it doesn't affect you. Now you see it. Usually you can easily see it in other people. You can't see it in yourself. You see people who are oblivious to the obvious reality right in front of them, and then every now and then reality will shock them, and they will be deeply undermined by the shocking event which they should have known about. They're out of touch with reality. We are too. Every now and then we find that out. We find ourselves in a certain set of circumstances and we have a reaction to it that we are quite surprised by because we didn't really know who we were. There's a monastery in West Virginia where I was ordained. When I was there, must be 28 years ago, this interesting fellow showed up. He was from Los Angeles and he was a doctor. He'd taken up meditation and he told me a story. He said, well, I was an emergency ward doctor. I was treating patients, people in motorcycle accidents, car accidents, gunshots, all ripped apart. It was just normal. Put your hand right inside of somebody, wash it off, go have a hamburger, come back. This was in the early 80s when the AIDS epidemic was starting in Los Angeles, and he did some work in the charity ward of Los Angeles General Hospital. There were a lot of AIDS patients there. He suddenly thought, I should get a blood test because I might have picked it up. I wouldn't want to have it and I wouldn't want to be spreading it either. So I'll just go to the nursing station and get a blood sample done. He goes to the nursing station and says, call Dr. So-and-so, I want to get tested. But Dr. So-and-so is busy with something, so he says, okay, just give me the vacutainer and the needle, I'll do it myself. I'll just take a blood sample and you guys send it off to the lab. So he puts the tourniquet on, puts the needle in, it fills up, he pulls it out, and a little blood shoots out. He faints. 
He wakes up in a hospital bed. He's fallen over and hit his head on the concrete floor, bam, like that. He saw his own blood, just a little bit. He fainted. As he's telling me this story in the monastery, he says, that's when I realized I have no idea who I am. And this led him to meditation because this is where you go to find out. You know, we can't have those kinds of surprises happening. There's all kinds of weird stuff that happens. Humans have very little self-knowledge. I ask them, what would you do if somebody came into the room with a gun right now? I don't know. That's right, you don't. And you might be very surprised because later on you find yourself cool as a cucumber and that's weird because you thought you would freak right out. Or you think, I'd be competent. And no, you're not. Just trembling, shaking, you can't think straight. Surprise! So we want to get past living with the possibility of this stranger that emerges from us and makes strange decisions. It's not good to live that way. So this is self-knowledge as well. This is leading us to deep self-knowledge based on reality. Why did he faint? Because he's not in touch with the reality that the bodies he's seeing are his body. His body is the same as that body, and death is inside him too. These are contemplations that we must do. Of course there's resistance, but this is why we have sangha and places to go, because it's really quite difficult to get around to this kind of stuff on your own in the corner of your bedroom. It really is very supportive to go and hear the talks, hear the dhamma, to be in an environment that does half the work for you, and allows you to progress that way towards this cessation and fading and dispassion. When we use words like that, we're really talking about very positive words. These are words which might be saying, the pain is healing, is disappearing, is fading, and beauty is rising and increasing and flowing irreversibly and with great certainty. That's the incredibly positive message of Dhamma. And that's what we always have to focus on. There are so many ways of teaching Dhamma, and some of the books and ways are rather forbidding and seem very austere. Going against the normal happiness of people. But it's never merely that. It's always that there has to be something better. And don't think small. Think big. Think differently. That's the primary message of the Buddha. So when you are practicing this breath meditation in these retreats, that's got to be the primary theme playing behind it. It gets you through as well. Sometimes you are disappointed. Sometimes things fall away. Sometimes you don't get around to it. Sometimes you think, I've regressed. Stir up energy. Stir up inspiration and start again. Because ultimately, you cannot stop on this voyage. It's just not satisfactory. There's no place to finally stop or rest. Once you begin, you might as well just keep going. <laughs>